Welcome to another episode of Culinary School Stories, the weekly podcast that is dedicated to sharing the stories of people around the globe whose lives have been influenced, impacted, touched, and or enriched, for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. Hi, my name is Colin Roach and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. You are an important part of this show where we ask the question, what's your culinary school story? So now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening in today to another episode of the Culinary School Stories podcast, a proud member of the Food Media Network. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please do so. It's free and can be done through your favorite podcast app or at www.culinaryschoolstories.com. So without any further delay, I would now like to introduce today's guest, Chef Christine Guzman-Martinez. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, sorry. Did I say Christina? Is it Christine? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We're in Miami. This is, I get that all the time. Don't so you want me to it. say, I can say Christine. Anything after Chris, I basically answer to. So <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. Don't even worry. Keep going. Okay. Perfect. Me. Well, I'd like to start off by asking how you found you know, culinary arts, you know, how did you get into this career? Because I see from your bio that you first started out in business school. So where along that path did you have that revelation? Was it in school? Was it before you were in school that you decided to make the switch to culinary and culinary school? So I always wanted to follow follow my father. He was in business. He was working um, for Sprint at the time. He was one of their executives. And I thought it was so cool that you know, making all these business moves. And I went to FIU for about a year and a half. I started my undergraduate and I absolutely hated it. I used to be, you know, very, very good in school. It was very easy. And then when I went into FIU, it was the passing of the ship in the night. Uh, I had a really tough time just kind of learning to cope with this huge school where I came from a small private school in Miami. So I had uh, you know, small fish into a big pond. And it was, it was a lot for me. And I decided that this is just not for me. I don't believe uh, that schooling for business is really something that you need to have. Business to me is a, a thing that you just have, you know, how to interact with people, how to uh, negotiate things. These are just things that you kind of either know or don't know how to do. Along those lines, I stopped going to FIU. I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And my grandmother, who's a huge influence on me, said to me one day, she goes, I wish if I had any dream, you know, I didn't have all these resources back then. But one of the things I, I loved is that, you know, cooking just brings people together and it brings so much happiness. And, you know, you've seen everybody in our family, how much we love food and how much it's, it's such a pull together of families. And I started looking up culinary schools, obviously, there's, you know, plenty to choose from. When I was going to school, I begged my parents, please let me go to the school. I need help. I really want to go to Johnson and Wales. She, my mother said to me, uh, we've already tried this once. I don't know if I believe you. And I see that the actual average salary for a cook is really low. Are you sure this is really what you want to do? And I said, yes, please, please. This is what I want to do. So she told me, only on one condition. You go and get a job in the industry working as a cook for a year. And if you do that, then we will help you and support you into going into culinary school. From there, I had 
like 50 applications that I tried so hard to get into. I, you know, knocked on everyone's door and it's this like girl with no experience trying to get a job in, in a kitchen. And people are like, yeah, right. I'm never going to give her an opportunity. I ended up going to an Outback Steakhouse randomly one day and I had an FIU shirt on and the proprietor there told me, Hey, uh, since you have an FIU shirt on, that was my alma mater. I'll give you a shot. Wow. And I literally told him, I said, I'll, I'll pay you. I'll do whatever. I'll cook. I'll clean dishes. Like just give me an opportunity. And I, I actually so appreciate his willingness to kind of just give this girl a shot because, you know, now he's a partner for Bole, which is a, a really popular restaurant chain down here. And I, Claude, Luca, I give you all of the uh, props in the world because you gave me my first start into the culinary world. So that was really my start of my my path towards going to culinary school. So that's great. So you think they let you into uh, the Outback or they hired you because of the shirt then? It wasn't because of your resume, your experience, One thousand personality. One thousand percent. And I said, please, I'll, I'll do anything. I will, like I said, I'll clean dishes. And they, they just gave me the opportunity. And I started as a, as a prep cook for them, working super early mornings, cleaning shrimp, uh, cleaning salad, making the baked potatoes, making the famous ranch sauce that everyone knows about. Mm-hmm. So it was a definite labor of love. And back then, I don't know how Outback is now, but they made everything in-house, croutons, salad dressings. We used to cut the actual meat ourselves. I mean, it was really labor intensive. And I actually learned an incredible amount about that situation, you know, to use later on in my life. And so that was enough to convince the parents to let you go to culinary school, right? It was like, okay, she's proven the proof of concept here. She's she's dedicated. We're going to let you go. So how did you pick Johnson & Wales in Miami? Was it just because of location? You were already in Miami. It's close to FIU. Or how did you look at other schools? Yeah. So six months later, I finally said, listen, this is exactly what I want to do. I had gotten onto the line at that point. I was working on Garmanger and the fry station. And I think I was learning how to uh, cook the steaks at the time. And, and I said, mom, I know this is what I want. I love this industry. And I started looking for uh, locations down in Miami because, uh, you know, obviously CIA at the time was like the place to be. Uh, but it was just it was very expensive. It was something that I didn't know if I wanted to take that risk of moving up to New York. I think I had a boyfriend at the time or something. So I was like, let's stay put in Miami. So between mm-hmm. that, you had uh, Johnson and Wales and you had the Cordon Bleu. I ended up choosing Johnson and Wales because I felt like they had a better reputation at the time. Being a Miami girl, Hyde Park, New York might have been a little cold in the winter, huh? A little chilly. So you started... What was you thinking? Well, you're there first day, you're, you're showing up. Uh, what, what, what's the process like? Tell, tell the listeners what happens. I guess they give you your equipment. They give you, you have your schedule. You're going off to labs. Uh, everybody's probably excited, nervous. What was your first lab? T- kind of tell us about day one. Right. I think either the day before or the day of you came to pick up your knives, you got your uh, big, thick book of kind of all the foundational recipes and what have you there. Uh, I picked up everything. They gave us the uniforms. They gave, I mean, so many things. I'm used to private school where you have to wear, uh, you know, a press shirt and shorts and do the whole thing. This was on a whole nother level. <laughs> you had to have the pants. 
and the shoes and the socks a certain way and your little handkerchief or whatever this certain way. And you need to have the little piece that goes on the handkerchief a certain way. And you need to have the hat and everything needs to be pressed. And do you have a thermometer? And do you have this? And for someone who has battled with uh, a longstanding diagnosis of ADD, this is the challenge of a lifetime <laughs> to get all these things in one place at one time. So it definitely was a learning curve for me. But my first class was baking and pastry with uh, Chef Flores, which I really enjoyed having him as one of my first teachers, but very quickly taught me that baking and pastry is not my number one, <laughs> for sure. So, because the culinary students, you would go in for a culinary degree. Culinary students have to take yes. a couple of front of the house and a couple of uh, baking and pastry type courses. Whereas, if you're there for baking and pastry, you don't. They don't necessarily get the culinary classes, the storeroom, the, some of those other ones. So, Correct. you were just doing it as a culinary student. Yes. Yeah, so we, we actually have blocks of classes that I think were like 14 days long. Uh, that are seven weeks. Uh, I don't remember that part. But we had. <laughs> Do you remember? I don't remember. Uh, I try to block out. Yeah, they're the nine day classes. Uh, culinary is nine days, and baking and pastry at one time was like 21, 22 days, but you know, then they've since switched. So the curriculum switched a couple of times, right. but sure, nine days, sure. seven days. Yeah. So we had those <laughs> blocks of time that the only thing that you're doing is that one class, and you're there for like seven hours a day. And you get to basically start either with the labs, which is you actually inside of the um, the school area that has the food lab. It has all of the different rooms with all of the uh, you know knives and cooking equipment, and each one is outfitted for essentially what that class is designed to be set up for: uh, baking a pastry or savory culinary side. So you can do that, or you can also do the regular classes where you learn food safety, you learn economics, you learn uh, leadership. It just depends on how you kind of set up if you're doing a lab block or a uh, normal academic block. Mm -hmm. And I chose lab because why not start off with the fun stuff? Right. <laughs> now, tell us about the dynamics of that class. Was there uh, even amounts, male, female? What about ages? You were not a typical student at the time, 18, right out of high school. You had a little time off with your NFIU. I mean, was there older students in there? Tell us about kind of the dynamics, the demographics, the mix. So one fun thing about it is you stick with your same group pretty much throughout the entirety of uh, your time there. Uh, my group was primarily, I'd say it's 60 to 70% male. Uh, 30% female. And then I had one or two people that were in like the older range in terms of like, if you were, you know, just coming out of high school versus for me, I think I was 22 when I started. Um, so I was a little bit older, so to speak. And then there were some people that were in their middle ages. And people from all over, I imagine too, not just from the local area, like a community college would have. There's probably people that come from everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. There were people that were from Miami. There were some people that were from out of town. So it was really nice. It, it literally is a lot like how you'll see when you start working in restaurants, that there is a very multicultural existence in all restaurants. It's, it's normally like that. You know, you aren't just working with one race, one gender, one culture. It's, it's always something different. And it's something that I actually do very much love about, uh, especially Miami is so culturally diverse. Uh, that's something that I love. I, I get to learn about other people's cultures. I learn different languages. 
you know, I have people who are Haitian. So therefore I learned Creole and then I have people that are Hispanic and I learned Spanish. And, you know, in culinary school, you basically learn French because you have to learn a bunch of, you have to learn a bunch of French words. So you get a little bit of everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, how did it compare to FIU? FIU was too big. You know, now you went to this smaller school, you're in these little cohorts going through labs together. Did you find your comfort zone there? Was it still a little odd? And, And how did it compare academically? I didn't exactly have like a tight knit group. We were very comfortable with each other. We were very polite to each other, but I wasn't the one that was going out afterwards for a drink or or afterwards to go hang out. At that time, like I said, I was a little bit older than some of the people. And then the people that were older than me had their own lives and they had things that they had to get back to. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was focused on getting a a job in between to start to advance my my own personal skills. So if my time wasn't in the labs, I was working in a kitchen somewhere. And that was really important to me. Now, was there a lot of academic homework? Was there reports? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a university, so you're getting a degree from that. How does that compare to, you know, like FIU or the, the le- level of rigor that you found at the other school? So I think for me, there's, I, I work on two different things. Either something is hard because it's just hard and it takes a lot of time and it's something that you maybe don't enjoy, or there's things that are a little bit more enjoyable that, you know, may take more time, but it's not so bad. And for me, I loved, uh, for more, for the most part, the academic side had more homework and things that you had to work on. Whereas the labs are more like you're learning everything in house and you are practicing it over and over again within that seven hour period. So it does have a difference. I will say FIU was almost all homework. You would come into class and you would talk about whatever you're supposed to talk about. And then you would leave and you would go do your own homework at that time. So it definitely does have a huge dynamic difference. And you are in a smaller group in culinary school. So you can work off of them. But most of your academics classes do require the homework. But again, it was fun homework. So it didn't really bother me too much. So as opposed to theory, which you may have gotten in the other school here, it was more practical. It was more business or culinary based. Yes. Okay, great. And I will say with culinary, your practice is everything because you have little theory. I mean, there's only 13 ways to cook things at the end of the day, more or less. So if everything has that basis, everything is just worked off of that. So the more practice you get, the more influence you get from other cultures, the more you see the world and you get to practice it in different areas. That's the only way that you're going to learn personally for me. I mean, I found the found culinary school to be foundational and it teaches you the basics. This is how you boil something. This is how you saute something. This is how you make omelets. This is how you do basic fundamental things. And then you're taking that and you're applying them to real world world practices that you see in restaurants and hotels. So it's less boring. If you love food and beverage, it's like the easiest uh, homework in the world. <laughs> so tell me about some of these lab classes. Did you have a favorite? What did you learn? What do you remember from it? what was hard? What was challenging from the practical part? Uh, tell, you know, maybe tell the listeners some of the things that you learned from the products you got to work with, some of the faculty. I'd say the most memorable person in my entire life <laughs> this far is Chef Brandenburg. He is quite notorious in Miami, not only for his ice sculpturing skills, uh, but also his rigorous uh, academia, if you will, when it comes to testing and grading. So that was actually weirdly one of my favorite classes because it was a challenge for me. He was like, I will not accept mediocrity. And that's just how it's going to be. So his class 
primarily was garmanger, which is uh, the protection of cold food or to care for the cold food. So that was ice sculpting and making aspic, which I have not used to this day yet. So maybe they should uh, take that out of the curriculum if it's still anywhere. <laughs> no one needs aspic. I talked about this like two days ago with a chef, a friend of mine. I have yet to use that to this day. So it's the classic. <laughs> but I have it in my repertoire, in my arsenal. If I ever need aspic, I have it. It's back. But <laughs> savory jello. Yep. <laughs> I never forget that. He's like, here, everyone, try it. And I'm like, no, thank you. That's uh, not for me. <laughs> but I'll always know how to make uh, butterflies out of lobster tails, and I'll know how to. Uh, make terrines because of him. And it's a, it's a lost art. So I actually really do appreciate having that in my, my tool belt, if you will. So that was actually a very important class for me. And who doesn't like to carry a chainsaw and cut up some ice. So that was a, that was a fun one for me. Also, I remember our omelet eggs class where you had to learn all the different cookery of the eggs. Uh, Chef La Castra was very well known for uh, forcing people to do a one minute omelet. And that was basically your final grade was how fast you can make a French omelet uh, perfectly, no brown edges, everything uniform and one third pockets when you roll it over how it goes onto the plate. If you have the chives correctly, it burns into my brain forever. You never look at an omelet the same way again after that class, right? I am very judgy towards omelets now. That's all I'm going to say there. <laughs> After going through that. Yeah. So is there a class that you ha wished you had in culinary school that you didn't have now that you're out in the industry, you have some perspective looking back, you're like, you know, we should have learned this. Is there anything that you think you may have missed? So I was actually very vocal when I was in culinary school that there was no molecular gastronomy. Now looking back, I don't know if I needed it as much. I think it was more of a trend than in real world world applications of, you know, the sauce making classes. I thought that was super important. Like for me, what's super, super important for me as an operations manager is the ability to understand mise en place, my ability to understand knife cuts. I think it's super important to understand. I think the inventory management class was very good. That was, you know, practical things are really, really important when it comes to operating a restaurant. Do you know the food safety? Do you know how to, you know, welcome guests into a restaurant? How do you provide proper service? How do you provide the options to make drinks for people? That's one of our classes that we had was mixology, where you learned about beer, wine, and cocktails. Uh, it's very important to understand uh, how to set up a line properly, which maybe they've never done with like cross uh, cross utilizing materials on a menu. I I know we did do a menu taking class, a menu making class, and that was really interesting. But kind of looking back, I think my end project was like a steakhouse, and it had like classic wedge, and some of these things are just not practical in the environment that we have today. We see trends in, you know, casual style eating. It's not always about fine dining. There are other ways of putting food out to the world than just putting out a beautiful steakhouse and having five diamond service. Yeah, it, that's always one of the tough things. I've been on a, quite a few curriculum committees, curriculum groups, making curriculum as we revise it. And you're always trying to make that balance. You know, you want it to be fun and exciting and the students to get, you know, the wow factor. But at the same time, you have to be 
you know, realistic. You only have a certain amount of time. Yeah, it's too practical. Yeah, and you know, okay, what is going to help them get a job? Which is why you mentioned ice carving. Ice carving is no longer in the curriculum. You know, it was <laughs> it was a technique when I was in culinary school that yeah, you could do in hotels, but now you just buy it right and pass on the cost to, buy the, to the customer. So, do you really need that? It's taking up space where something else could be taught. I mean, always the knife cuts and the menu planning, costing those are sanitation. They're going to be in there. But the other ones, it's like, you know, aspic. Is aspic in there anymore? No. Now it's more, you know, more contemporary. But it may come back. <laughs> yeah, you never know. There's still time. No, but I will say these people who are artisans at their, at their game, like the people that may, if you, if you are in Miami, there is an amazing restaurant called Edge that's in the Four Seasons in Brickell. He does some of the best charcuterie I have ever had. And trust me. I'm a charcuterie lady and I try to find it wherever I am. Uh, his stuff is phenomenal. If you want to see true artistry when it comes to terrines and roulades and, and everything, he is, he is, his name is Aaron Brooks. He's the executive chef there. He is fantastic. And you look at that and it's like, wow, what a lost art. And you see people that buy, you know, they'll buy La Quercia and they'll buy all these like amazing farmed charcuteries, but it's like, Hey, you can actually save money for your restaurant. If you have, charcuterie on your menu, you could be making those things for your restaurant and saving the money that will in the end help you out because then you have almost job security because it's like, hey, I have something that no one else has and I can save you money. And that's what restaurateurs love to hear. Can you save me money and will you give me a better product? Right. By far. So important. So I see uses for both and you know aspect. I don't think it's coming back, but charcuterie, <laughs> super, super important. Right. Cheese making. Did we ever do cheese making? I don't think we did that. That would have been a great class. I would have loved that. Yeah, I think they did it in one of the baking class, how baking works or something. I think they used to make ricotta or something. But yeah. I missed that one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's, again, there's so much to learn. And so, you know, what do you I know. mean? And it, I know. It's always that trying to make those decisions like, you know, what, what can get you a job? What about in the industry? So we I will say, though, most of it was very important. Yeah. It is the foundation. So at the end of the day, there could be aspect or whatever, but. 95% of it I use to this day. And we've added a, you know, most schools have a bachelor's degree. So, you know, the first two years is really those foundational classes. And then you can go out in the industry and you have enough to get you, you know, started primed. Or those that want to stay on and take those other type classes, the advanced charcuterie or HACCP classes or, or something along those lines can stay on for that bachelor's degree and get it. And we've, you know, many of us, we've uh, added uh, electives too. So it's, you know, if not for everybody, it's not part of the main curriculum, but you know, I have one that I teach uh, in, uh, introduction to culinary instruction for those that want to go in to be a teacher. That's cool. And there's another one called food media presentation skills for the culinary students. So those that want to learn about blogging or, you know, podcasts or, or doing food styling, that's another elective. So it's not required, but those that want a little bit more in a specific area, those electives sometimes fit that bill for that. I really like that. I think it doesn't hurt to learn about food and Sometimes our industry lacks a lot of resources to do better. And you kind of have this old school chef mentality where they're like throwing, you know, pots and pans across the room and everyone's mean and you have to sit there. And I, I, I've staged for Blackberry Farms in Tennessee. I've staged for half of the chefs in Miami and learning those little techniques and things are so important. I would have loved to do that. We don't always have those resources to branch out because I had to do that kind of myself. I, I decided I didn't want to be a full-on chef. Uh, I didn't want to you know, be in the kitchen all the time. 
and there are other resources that you can have within a culinary school that really push you forward. Mm. Yeah, why don't we? Go, why don't you tell us about that? Because I know you've left the back of the house at some point, you know, and you've moved more to the front of the house or the kind of general manager overseeing that marketing. So maybe there's some listeners out there that are in culinary school or thinking about, it, but they're like, you know, I don't want to spend all my time in back of the house or being the chef. But where else can I go with this? And maybe you know, telling your story may you know inspire a few of them. Absolutely. One of the things that I actually love most about my personal experience is that I did go to culinary school and I learned savory side of culinary. I think that that is huge in my repertoire. If anyone looks at my resume, they say, wow, she's kind of done it all. And actually back of house is weirdly enough, the hardest thing to kind of get into when you are uh, working in the industry. A lot of people go to the front of house route because it's very easy. Just talk with guests, have, a, have them have a great time. But actually learning back of house takes time and dedication. It took me many years to move out, but it was also many years that I actually now appreciate so much because I have that under my belt when I need to talk to the cooks, when I need to interact with our chef. Anything that I do, I know that I can do it just as good as them. And it actually shows that I'm a responsible leader, that I'm able to be respected because I can walk in the line and I can do everything that they're doing and sometimes better. <laughs> but what's important for me... <laughs> But what's important for me is that I didn't want to just be stuck in the back of the kitchen. I remember I was working for Jeffrey Zakarian, who's one of the iron chefs. Uh, he's pretty well known in New York. Mm -hmm. He was a James Beard finalist. He's done it all. But I was working for him and I remember doing like a New Year's Eve party and it was like 300 people. And I'm just putting out like plates and plates of the same thing. And I said, this is not what I want to do. I, I find no satisfaction in putting out the same plate 300 times. And then someone telling me that one plate was maybe not to their liking or, you know, it just doesn't give you that instant gratification. So for me, it was like, okay, I love this, but this is like not exactly it for me. So I started exploring other ways around it. At the time, I ended up going and helping my friend, Chef Todd Erickson, who had Haven at the time and now has Wawa's, which is a taqueria. I started helping him in the kitchen. I said, listen, I'll, I'll come and help you out for a little bit. They ended up needing someone to help with their social media. So I ended up just doing it because I had at the time my own blog because it was about uh, me as a cook working in the industry in Miami and what I learned along the way, staging for all these different people. I, you know, staging, I can't say enough about, yes, if you have the opportunity and the ability to work uh, for little or no cost just for gaining of knowledge, it is so important. I worked for the first pop-up in Miami. That way, I worked for an amazing chef. Uh, right after that, uh, I worked for, like I said, Blackberry Farm under Joseph Lynn, who is an exceptional chef. All of that was because I sat there and I said, give me a job. I will do anything I want to learn. And that, to me, is very important to learn different styles of cooking. And you start to learn about different types of areas in the kitchen and beyond. Well, maybe you could explain... So listeners, what is a stage? Because they may not know and how best to get that. What did you do to make sure that you, you know, were picked or chosen? So a stage is considered a trial or a trail, as they like to call it, where essentially you go and you work in a kitchen for what could be an hour, a few hours, a half a day, a full day. Some people will do it for months. Uh, and basically that's, you learning about the restaurant, they're learning about you. Some people will actually do it as a form of a job interview to see if you have the correct skills that they require. With that, you gain knowledge of the restaurant, you work under an amazing chef, you can put it under your resume, and you're actually you're helping them and they're helping you. So that's what a stage is primarily. 
It's like you could work for free. You could go to a restaurant and say, you know, I'm willing to work for free for a week, help out wherever you need, but at the same time, I'm going to get a behind-the-scenes look and maybe, you know, pick up some skills and learn some things too. So it's a win-win. I literally walk up to the chef and I say, please let me help you. Choose any day, any time. I won't be bothered to you. I'll peel potatoes. Just give me an opportunity to help you out. That's what I did. That's what I did for Blackberry Farm. I went for, for dinner for my birthday. My parents live in Tennessee now and I went to visit them and they said, this is the place if, if you're going to have your birthday dinner, this is the place to go. We go and I look and I said, well, this place is amazing. They like have their own truffles and dogs that go and get their truffles and they have uh, a, a greenhouse that has all of their greens. And I said, ah, this is, I want to work here. And so I actually ended up knowing that I was going there for my birthday. So I literally brought up my knife roll, which is like the bag with all of your knives in it. I literally brought it up with me and I thought I was going to get stopped by TSA. (laughs) (laughs) But I brought up my knife roll and I literally said, this is going to happen whether they like it or not. And I actually, during the birthday dinner, I saw the chef Joseph Lynn and I walked up to him and I said, chef, I would love, I have two more days here. Please give me an opportunity. I brought everything with me. You don't even have to ask for anything. I will do whatever it takes if you'll let me work a day in the kitchen. He goes, how about tomorrow? And I said, I'll see you tomorrow. So I literally went the next day. Uh, and you'll see all these amazing restaurants that you you think of that you're like, oh, this is so un- unattainable, but why not? What's the worst they're going to say? No. Right. And then you go on and you try someone else. So it was so cool to me because I actually, we were out of something, let's say spinach or something. And I said, Oh, did you guys order the spinach? And she goes, No, come with me. And we literally got in a golf cart and drove out a mile and picked the spinach out of the ground and brought it back for the awesome. <laughs> yeah. So you can't get much better than that. People also don't realize we're in the hospitality business. So when you go to a chef or you're going to approach someone or a general manager, the owner, we're in the hospitality business. We want to help those that are coming behind us that are just getting into this career are interested in what we're doing. We want to share. We want to be open about that. So staging is a great, great way to do that. And, and, you know, you don't have to be fearful. And as you mentioned, worst case, they say no, you try another place. Absolutely. And seriously, please email me, ask me questions. I love teaching people. It is one of my passions is to actually train my staff, teach other people about the industry. I seriously love it because I wasn't always given that opportunity and I had to kind of bust through the doors. And, you know, at the end of the day, I am a woman in the industry and which is far and few. And I've, I've been able to push my way up to, you know, the top or up echelon of upper management, which is super not easy. I will tell you that, especially in a male dominated world, but you can do it without having to go through all the rigmarole. There's definitely people out there that are willing to help and, and make your experience what it needs to be in order to get our industry like at the forefront. And that's a great offer because this has been a thread that's kind of, you know, all throughout this podcast. Every guest I have on is always offering themselves help, mentorship to any of the listeners out there. So is there a way that they can contact you? Is there some type of social media where they can get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So my Instagram handle is Christine M underscore MIA. You can DM me there. You can email me at Christine at tequizatacos.com. That is my email for the business. Feel free to reach out. You know, you never know. At the end of the day, you did say it very well. We are in hospitality and my happiness is to make other people happy. So if I can help you by answering a few questions or even showing you back of house of how it is, it's, it's really cool. I mean, and I've done literally everything I've done. I've cooked on private yachts for people. I have 
uh, cooked in restaurants. I have cooked in hotels. I have gone to front of house. I'm now the operations manager. So I oversee multiple locations. So I've washed dishes plenty of times. If you have the passion and the drive, you will appreciate every little step along the way. And it's, it's something that's very important. I'll never take away the days that I didn't have the dishwasher come in and I rolled up my sleeves and I put a trash bag over me and I started washing. Mm-hmm. It happens. This is that industry. This is what it is. And, and it's so important to really, you know, have that determination of I'll do whatever. And if I don't do it with passion, I shouldn't do it at all. And thank you for that. And I'll put those links into the show notes. So if someone didn't quite catch those, they can reach out and I encourage anyone that has questions uh, for you or for any of our guests, you know, go back to past episodes, look in the show links and reach out, you know, and, and, and ask those questions. Maybe you're in high school and you're listening right now and thinking about going into this industry or a female or thinking about switching to front of the house or anything from your situation. There is resources out there that can answer your questions and provide, you know, inspiration. Uh, for you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay, so now you're front of the house, and you, I see that you, according to your bio here, had recently, a few years back, an award, 30 under 30. Is that true? Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so I was a general, first-time general manager at the time, so we fast-forward a few years from helping out my friend, Chef Todd. I was offered a position as my first GM role. Uh, I had a reporter reach out to me and say that we are collecting the 2014 uh, Zagat 30 under 30 awards. We would like you to be a part of it. Would you be willing to talk to us a little bit about it? Come to a party. I'm like, I will say yes to all these things. No problem. Absolutely. And it was such an honor. I mean, I was reading through, we have this little book that had like a little bio of each person at the time. The people that came out of that class were extraordinary. And you look around and you're like, wow, these people like literally have made things in this industry in Miami. I mean, Eileen Andrande, who is the owner of Finca, which is a huge restaurant down here. Her parents own Isla Canarias, which is a huge like hub for Cuban food. You know, we have Tyler Ridgeway. I mean, just like really, really monumental people that have actually changed our industry a lot, which made me feel very honored that I was even thought of to participate. Great. That's awesome. So going back to, um, you, you mentioned being a female in this industry and especially back of the house and you've made the switch. Could you talk a little bit about that? Cause I'm sure some of our listeners out there may be wondering about what it's going to be like. Did you find that to be, you know, positive, negative? Did you find it to be detrimental? Did you get looked down upon? Was it a bonus? Did you talk about the industry? So I would say that it was twofold. Uh, I definitely feel like I used, I tried to use my charm and charisma for good and to kind of push myself forward. And I felt like I was a little bit less uh, assertive or aggressive that like, you know, they can, it's this girl, she just wants to cook, like whatever, let's let her in. At the same time, when I did first start in the restaurant industry, I definitely had my fair share of uh, men being men, if you will. So I did have that in it. At one point I said, oh, these guys are just so ridiculous. And they just, you know, sometimes guys are just guys. And especially in the kitchen, when I first started, it was like the man's club, they would say really profane things. And they would, you know, do man, thi- <laughs> man things. I don't know how to explain it without saying things. But you know, you get it, you get it. They yeah. some guys are known for being a little bit more raunchy than you would normally find. And that was kind of the kitchen life when I started. And you know, that's very much like the old school chef mentality. You you have that. 
And as I've evolved and as I've worked in different uh, places and different levels of dining services, I have noticed a change over the last, I'd say within the last five years, it's really become super respectful. You know, you are part of the team. I look at you no different than anyone else, as long as you hold your own. And I started finding that out at the very, you know, at the very halfway point was, hey, if you can hold your own, I don't care who you are. I just want you to be my teammate and really succeed and help us succeed. Because it's kind of like this war mentality when you're on the line and you're cooking for a very busy restaurant. It's like, Mm -hmm. get the food out, make sure the food is right and do it to the best of your ability. And if you can't keep up, they want nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. So as long as you are able to keep that mentality and you're like, hey, let's push through this, the world has gotten so much better. And I actually love being a female in in this industry. There's so many powerful females right now that are being empowered right now to really, you know, take advantage of the opportunities that we're given to be better and to like really elevate the game. It's not just, you know, one person or one group that's dominating. Everyone is accessible and able to be as best as they can be as long as they bring their own A game. Yeah. Male, female, it doesn't matter. Anybody can rise up in in this industry and, and sexual harassment has no place and it and it's changed now, and I, I agree with what you said there. And it should have changed sooner, but Absolutely. now with human resources, and it's just not it's not put up with, and people get terminated really quickly. But it is a you know kind of a thought process that some people have because it was the old way. But you know, if anyone is listening, it's it's not like at least in this country. I mean, I know in some other countries it still could be uh, happening because some of the guests have reported out on that. But you know, it's really changed, and that shouldn't be um, a detrimental for anyone. And if that is ever happening to you, say something, I, you know, even if let's say something comes back on you, I know that sounds really terrible to say, but like, I'm literally telling you because you will be helping so many more people down the line than just you. And there's so many people that will respect you a thousand times more because you said something about it. And that way people can go ahead. I mean, I never said anything. So I can definitely say that I was one of those people that never said anything. And it was silly of me and I should have said something. And now that I look back, it's kind of like older, wiser. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone came to me and said that, I would have taken immediate action against that person and they would have not been working there or anywhere near anywhere that I know, because it is so important to have that inclusive, respectful workplace. Pete Wells just had this huge uh, article come out recently in the last you know few weeks about uh, celebrity chefs having the the bad behavior and the old chef mentality. And I can't tell you how many people that were responding to that article saying. Yeah, there is better now. This is definitely the chef of the past. The new chefs are not like that. This is this is a new era of people that they're respectful. No one needs to yell and throw things and scream. You can be just as effective as saying, this is what I expect. These are my standards and we will move forward or otherwise we will not move forward together. Yeah, and if they're doing it to you, they're probably doing it to other people. And by not saying it, it just perpetuates it. And we need to get rid of those people. So do say something. I know... It's important to try to fit in and you embarrass. You don't want to say anything, but say something. Say something to your supervisor. Say something to human resources, and you know, stop that right away. Good point. Absolutely. So, what do you think is the biggest factor for your success? I think I'll use persistence because I feel like that's a positive way of saying that I'm annoying. But persistence is <laughs> <laughs> persistence is such a key thing. I will never stop bothering people if it's something that I want. Uh, if it's great for the company, I work so hard towards these things, you know, having this ability to just kind of 
persevere and push through and just keep opening the doors for yourself, that will get you everywhere. You know, there's so many things going on in a restaurant. Is the kegerator working? Is the ice machine producing enough ice? Did the cook come on time? Did the delivery come? Did you order last night? All these things are happening like on a crazy basis. And sometimes managers are not able to step back and say, hey, is this something that I need more of? I mean, literally my my first actual practice of inventory was me bothering my, my kitchen manager of Outback Steakhouse saying, can I help you with inventory? Can I help you with inventory? Do you want me to count that for you? Do you want me to go into the freezer? Because no one likes going in the freezer. If you've ever worked in the industry, the freezer is a bad, bad place that no one ever wants to be in because it's freezing and everything's like frozen to everything. And you have to literally move everything to make the counts for the inventory. Yeah. They like to do inventory by guesstimates when it's in the freezer. Like, yeah, I think that's five (laughs) boxes. Let's go. (laughs) I'm so happy that we only (laughs) use our freezer for our impossible meat. Otherwise, I would hate it too. But I mean, I think it's so funny to me that people hate using the freezer, but I said, I'll do the freezer. I have no problem with that. And only if you teach me how to do inventory. So literally, I have no issue going above and beyond so that I can learn that piece of knowledge and then move on and use it for the greater good. And if you're persistent with a smile, it's not annoying. There you go. It took me a few weeks to let him to finally allow, like, let him let me do the inventory or to help him literally count. It's like, oh, how many oranges do we have? I'm like, I could have done that for you weeks ago. Like, why were you taking so long to teach me that? But you just have to be persistent. So let's flip that. What was the biggest mistake you ever made? And what did you learn from that? So uh, when I was a the first time general manager, as I said, I learned a lot. I ended up being in a less than ideal relationship with someone at the time. They were really bringing me down personally, which ended up bringing me down inside of work. And it's kind of one of the biggest mistakes or failures that I personally feel is that I was not able to showcase my 100% when I was working for that person. Hmm. And I look back at the time and I said, Oh, wow, I was just dealing with so much. And I was so overworked. I was working like 80 hours a week. It was it was so crazy. I literally like wake up, go to work. By the time I got out of work, it was close closing time. So I'm out by 11 or 12. And I literally go to sleep and come back. And it was like, literally, I was the only manager. So GM, sure, I was the restaurant manager. And I was the only one there to oversee the property. So for me, I didn't take care of myself first. And when I didn't take care of myself first, I got burnt out and it affected my work. It affected everything around me. And that's my own personal failure. I wanted to make sure everyone else was okay, but I wasn't okay. But as they say in airlines, put on your safety mask first before you help other people because you can't help other people without helping yourself first. Yeah. And that's so true because in the past it was always, let's work a hundred hours and let's, you know, be crazy. And really in the long run, you're doing nobody a service with that because, you know, you end up breaking down yourself. So this is seeing a change in the industry as well. It's more about self-care and take care of yourself and don't work these crazy hours. And that when you are working, it makes you a better manager, a better cook, a better server when you have that time to self-care. My managers do not work over a certain hour ever. I don't do it to them. And if I wouldn't do it for my, like, if I don't do it myself, I will never ask someone else to do it for me. It's Mm -hmm. so, so important. We still have a long way to go when it comes to self-care in this industry. There's a lot of people that know that people tend to turn to um, drinking or drugs when they are not 
able to take care of themselves. And, you know, even still, even the last few years, we've had a lot of chefs that have, you know, turned down dark paths because they weren't able to take care of themselves. And that's something that I work on every day. So I'm not saying that I sit down and have like spa days once a month, because that's really not how it is. But it's like, hey, if I need to go to the doctor's appointment, I'm going to the doctor's appointment. If I need to take time, I have an hour and a half between the time that I let my husband off for work for the day to the time that I have to walk into the store. That is my time. So having that piece of my time, and therefore I'm giving that piece to my managers, and therefore I'm giving that piece to my staff creates a better, a better community. You know, I'll, I try my best never to call up my managers unless I absolutely have to on their days off. I don't do it. And I think that I think they appreciate it because I know that I would have really appreciated it when I was, you know, in that position. And it's something that, you know, if I have to ask for something later on down the road, maybe they're a little bit more willing to help me out when we have those tough situations than if I were to be mean and, Mm -hmm. and overbearing and make them work 60, 70 hours a week. It's just, that's not how it is. We are, we are a team and ultimately I can't do it by myself and they can't do it by themselves. Yeah. That work-life balance, you know, so important, you know, for ourselves and also for the people that are around us, you know, our loved ones, family, coworkers, you know, it's just important. I mean, we need to do more of that in this industry. Absolutely. Okay, so now that you've been out of school for a long time, you have, you know, perspective, you're looking back, what are you doing now and how did culinary school help or not help uh, with your day-to-day duties, your responsibilities, your role now? So I think of culinary school, as I said, as a foundation. And you can take away from culinary school what you want. A lot of people that I know kind of flew through culinary school. They didn't have to go 100%. They you know, you showed up for class, you made sure the project's done, but there wasn't all the time. I'd say 90% of the people actually take it extremely seriously, but there is a a small percentage that's just like, I just want to get through because I want to be a celebrity chef and I want to go do my own thing. You take what you want out of the school. You're not going to come out of there and be Anthony Bourdain. You're not going to come out of there and be the David Chang of the world. That's just really not what it is. What you're taking from there is the foundation of everything, you know, how to cook certain things, how to learn, you know, Escoffier's way, how to do different culinaries from different cuisines. I mean, the sky's the limit. But within that, you get the foundation, like I said. So in my position, I'm the operations manager. So I oversee multiple locations of a taco shop. Uh, what we are known for, I'm at Satiza currently, what we're known for is our tortillas that we make from scratch. So we actually make the masa dough from scratch. We go through the whole nixtamalization process of cooking, soaking, and grinding the corn, which is a specialty item. It's not something that everyone knows. You know, you literally take the corn that has been dried. We use a American corn. We use a blue corn. So it's an organic non-GMO corn. We soak it with lime, we grind it. And from that, you get the masa, which is the dough that a lot of people will know as masa harina that you can have, that you add water. This is basically fresh masa harina, not necessarily the actual powder of it. It's the actual dough itself. So it's, it's a like one step up in, in you know, artisanal ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I said, it's a lost art. So it's really, really important that we keep all these traditions of like hand making things. It's, it's amazing. And from that, you make the tortillas. We have a lot of wholesale customers, hotels, restaurants that use our products for other people because they see the, the influence and the value of it. So for me, it's really, really important that we are keeping those things alive and that we are uh, celebrating, you know, these techniques of the terrines and making the masa and, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the meats. Those are such important aspects of the culinary 
culinary industry. And from that, I have learned that it's very important to uh, showcase that. So one of my biggest accomplishments that I feel like I've had since I've started working here is making sure that every guest that walks in the door knows our process, knows why it's special. And that's why they can afford to have a little bit more of an expensive taco. Yeah, because we're actually making the whole process from scratch in-house. So for me, that's really, really important to push that onto our guests. It's really important for me to know that foundational knowledge of how things need to be cooked, how things need to be operated, how the drinks need to be made, how it's important to hold things at certain temperatures. All of those things are so important for my job in order to oversee multiple locations is that do you have the process of what's important? You know, do you know why we're doing the tortillas the way that we are? I literally take all of our staff and they go and watch the grinding of the corn process. Wow. Like You literally just don't get that yeah. until you literally see the corn going through the grinder and the grinder comes out and it's masa. Like you just don't see that every day. So it's really important for me to show the staff like, Hey, this is why it's important. And this is why the guests think that it's important. And this is why they should know that it's important. Mm -hmm. It's a quality issue. It's a differentiator. Absolutely. I mean, there's very few people that do it, especially in Miami. And it's something that is looked upon as kind of like a lost art. And for me, Mm. knowing that it's a really, really important you know, process and knowing that, you know, not everybody does it and you don't learn these things in school. Those are the foundational learnings of like, okay, it's a dough at the end of the day. So like how are doughs made? Okay. With the product and with water and some people use butter. How many locations do you have? So we actually have two locations about to be three. So now that you have this perspective, you've been out of school for a while. Was it worth it? All the time, the money, the return on investment, was it there for you? Or would you change something now looking back? For me, it was worth it. Because like I said, I got the foundation. Yes, Google is your friend now. You know, YouTube has everything. Mm -hmm. Would you technically learn it? Yes. But you literally have like someone literally there saying, this is the way it needs to be. This is the way it actually needs to be. Because again, the omelets do not lie. You know who's gone and who hasn't gone. Right. Culinary school gets you there quicker, I think, because it's you know it's condensed and it and it make and it makes you do stuff and it you know forces you to go through. It. Yes, much quicker, much quicker. And I walk through the door and I say, "Yeah, I've been to culinary school," and people go, "Oh, okay, she knows what she's talking about." Credibility, <laughs> credibility. You know, I've had a very famous chef as a friend that he's very popular down here in Miami, and he quit culinary school and he said, "You don't need it." And I said, "Yeah, technically you're right, but technically." Why not just go through it? I went to the two-year, which now that you said that the four-year has a lot of these advanced things, I kind of wish that I could go because I do love that that nerdiness of like learning more and, and, and gaining as much knowledge as possible. But at the same time, yeah, you could do it without culinary school, but you get the kickstart, you get a lot of resources. I mean, even to this day, I still talk to a few of the chefs just to say hi and whatever. And I love hearing about what's going on and what's, you know, the next thing and I can't, I can't take that back to the world. And it's like most schools, education, higher ed learning, it's what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. You know, so if you're there and you're serious and, you know, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of time, but if you're there for the right reasons, you're going to pull so much more out of that. Absolutely. If you're, if your end goal is to be a line cook, then maybe it's not worth it hundred percent for you because it will cost more to go to college than it is to be, <laughs> than it is to actually work every year. Yeah. Right. But, uh, taking that knowledge and exceeding the expectations of others around you to become an executive chef, to become 
an operations manager to become a, you know, culinary director for Shake Shack, you know, like these people have all had that individualized training that maybe you wouldn't have received otherwise. Yeah. Don't go to culinary school to be a line cook. <laughs> don't do it. It's not worth it. <laughs> and and I will say that culinary school will, will propel you about five to 10 years forward that you would not normally have in a line cook setting. You might have to work for as a line cook for two to five years to even get a position as a sous chef, you know, some places you can get there faster, but you know, normally it takes, I mean, would you agree with me two to five years to become a sous chef? And then after that, you need at least two years to five years to become maybe a chef de partie or a chef de cuisine. And then from there, you need another five years to become an executive chef just to work your way up. But when you're coming out of culinary school, you've at least knocked off three years or so of line cook, and then you knocked out a few years of sous chef. Yeah, a lot of the guests that I've had on have said that after culinary school, it was about 10 years before they got their first, you know, whether that's an executive sous in a big hotel or a restaurant chef role. So it was about 10 years. I, I think it's like medical school. You know, it's like being a doctor. Medical school, then you got to go out and do your residency and learn. We are in residency. This is residency. <laughs> and then you open up your practice. You're the official doctor. Now you're the official chef, so... That is such a good reference. That's really on point, actually. I very much agree with that because I don't trust certain people for certain roles without a certain level of experience or degree equivalent because then I can say, okay, so they know inventory. They know how to do HACCP. They know everything that comes with uh, ordering. And you know all these things are, are really important as for me, if I'm looking for a manager or someone that can lead other people, it's for them to have these foundational knowledges before they even walk in the door. Yeah, it's just the foundation. It gives, scratches the surface. Then you go out, you perfect it, you use it in practice, and then you become an expert, and then you know you can take the helm. I agree. Okay, as we come to the end of our chat today, and before we wrap up, is there any last-minute advice or guidance that you could leave with the listeners, you know, something you could share with them uh, from your background? I think for me, you know, go for your dreams. There is nothing that is stopping you from being the best that you can personally be. If if your dream is to be a beverage director for a huge hotel or to be a, you know, food and beverage manager or to own your own restaurant, the sky's the limit. And it's only about how much passion and how much persistence that you bring to the table, because those are what's going to set you apart from everyone else. I can assure you that. Awesome. Great advice. Okay, well, that is just about all the time we have for this episode. And I want to first thank you, Christine, for coming on the show today and sharing your culinary school story with all of us. We really appreciate your time, your insight, and your honesty. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, thanks again. I enjoyed our chat. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. And a big thanks and appreciation also goes out to all of you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy the show and this episode. You all are a big part of this show, so please let us know what you think. Your comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. You can email them to culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. That's culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. Or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. That's area code 207-835-1275. And if you like the show, we have a big ask of all of you, and that is to share the podcast with everyone you know. 
and to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, until our next culinary school story, take care and be well. Bye-bye. Culinary School Stories is a proud member of the Food Media Network.